I think there's a historical reason for this. And that is that we were in charge of them when they were little. Right. And if that we criticize them, they might get in trouble. Interesting. Anything we say, it's, it's through a megaphone, a megaphone of judgment. If you know that, I mean, it's just the reality. It's not neurotic. It, it's just the reality. Once you know that, then you, then you say, you know, I think I'll, I'll find a nicer way to say your hair is dark. Hello, everyone. I'm Denise Gorant. Welcome to Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. Thanks for joining me for another conversation about the ins and outs of parenting adult children. Your diapering days are over. Now it's time to consider when to bite your tongue. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. This is Denise Gorant. The holidays are a busy time. I hope all of you are slowing down and enjoying your families and, of course, your adult children. To get all of us ready for this stressful and sometimes emotional time of year, we're going to share our favorite past episode that focuses on the do's and don'ts when the kids come home or you go to visit. Or maybe there's no visit at all. Enjoy this interview with author Jane Isay. It's funny and informative. And happy holidays from all of us at Bite Your Tongue. Today we're talking about the holidays and all our adult children. I can still remember as an adult kid being so excited to go home for the holidays. But also, I didn't live in town with my parents, so there was a little bit of anxiety too. Well, now we're on the other side of the bridge, and it's our adult children coming home to see us. Sometimes they're coming with their new partners, new spouses, grandbabies, and even in-laws. There's enough stress when visitors are in your home as it is. So how can we prepare for this and make it joyful for everyone? Today, we're welcoming Jane Isay, the author of the popular book, Walking on Eggshells, Navigating the Delicate Relationships Between Adult Children and Parents. She's authored several books, but this is the one that really captured our attention. A few of the chapters in the book address the stress of the holidays and adult children, so we thought she'd be a great guest. Let's get started with Jane, the author of Walking on Eggshells. I've read the book, and it's terrific but I wanted to call attention to one paragraph in her book overview that I really loved. Listen carefully. We raise our children to be independent and to lead fulfilling lives. But when they finally do, staying close becomes more complicated than ever. And for every bewildered mother who wonders why her children don't call, there's a frustrated son or daughter who just wants to be treated like a grown-up. I thought that was very special. So welcome, Jane. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Oh, well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I started out as a book editor um, when, I, when I dropped out of graduate school. And, um, and for until I was 65, I edited serious nonfiction, psychology, child development, archaeology, you name it. Spent 15 years at the Yale University Press a sexist institution then. I hope it's gotten a little bit better. <laughs> um, and then I came to New York Publishing. I ran basic books and had a series of wonderful jobs where I published all kinds of interesting people. And I um, I was sick of corporate life. I wanted to do so. I was sick, turning 65. And there was a book that I tried to get people to write for me so I could publish it. And it was about how hard it is to deal with your grown children when they're grown, you set them free, they're supposed to live their lives and they're not answering your phone calls 
And it's so hard to negotiate. And I couldn't get anybody to write it. But one of my signature uh, uh, gifts as a book pub editor was to help people with their first books. I thought to myself, you know how to write a book. <laughs> I quit my job. I was editor-in-chief at Harcourt. That was a very distinguished job. Wow, big job. Yeah. Big job. I set about doing what I would have told anybody to do, which is you talk, you interview, you talk to dozens and dozens of people, try to understand what's going on and figure out how to tell it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I spent spring and summer talking to people and I learned that I was not alone, that our grown children. What year was this? What year was this? Give me the time. It was uh, 17 years ago, uh, 17 and a half years ago. My grandson, my first grandson was born the day before my husband, who was a late husband, who was a literary agent, submitted the book to a, an editor who had fired me. Okay. <laughs> but I knew she liked the book. I just she had love your story. And we could talk about your story all the rest of the podcast. It's almost over. So I interviewed grown children and the parents, half and half. I, I called it Walking on Eggshells. Yeah, I love that title. Know. And we... Um, and Jonathan submitted it to Phyllis Grant, who had fired me. It broke my heart because she was the smartest person in publishing. How could she fire Jane? But that's another story. And she loved it. She bought it in a day because wow. she understood that this is a problem that happens every year. You're some gener- Every generation has children who grow up and leave the nest. During the time that I was writing the book, my favorite story happened. My younger, I have two sons and my younger son was 28 at the time. He was in politics. He was running the first senatorial campaign of Chuck Schumer. Oh, wow. Okay. He had been Chuck's chief of staff in the house. I knew he was busy. So I didn't expect him to call me. So one day I I missed him and I left a message. This is in the in the day of landlines. Right, right, right. Left him a message. Hi, Josh. This is mom. Give me a call. Nothing. Hi, Josh. Call two. This is mom. Call three. Josh, it's your mother calling. And call four was, hi, Josh, this is mom. And if you don't call me today, I'm voting for Al D'Amato. <laughs> Well, let um, me and, ask you something as you say this. Yeah. Um, anyway, am I interrupting you? Because you, you're not on at, all. Not okay. at all. Let me ask you something, though. You know, OK, I'm in a little bit genera- different generation than you. My kids are now Josh's age. So I have a they're almost 33 year old and almost 30 year old. When you look back to your time, because what I try to do when I think of my kids is yeah. what was I like at their age? And I want to return my parents' phone calls. And it wasn't because I didn't love my parents, but no, I didn't always want to return their phone calls. So then why, when we become adults, do we not understand that completely with our adult children? Well, it's one of the great amnesias. (laughs) And when somebody says to you, did you want to talk to your parents about what was really going on? Everybody says, no. (laughs) Did you want to tell your secrets? Are you kidding? But we think that our relationship is different with our children because we've been better parents than our parents were. Yeah, it's or funny. Because, like that. Right. But when you when you really look at it, you realize that, at least for me, this is such a growth period in their lives and such a learning yeah. period in their lives. And mm-hmm. they're developing who they are as a person. And they do want to separate from us. I mean, they Absolutely. may love us very much. They may be very connected. But the more independent they can become, the better they feel about themselves, I think. 
You're totally right. And it's very much like a two-year-old. You know, the no period. Yeah. It's just the same. They want to be, you try to hold on to them so they don't fall. And they want to try to walk on their own. Right. 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 And they're prepared to fall. Grown children are the same way. And the one thing I learned when I was doing the research, I just want to tell you these two findings, which are the keys. One is they don't want advice. They don't like it. They can't stand it. And if you happen to be right, you will pay for being right. (laughs) Okay. Um, That's that's the second one. And the other one is, which was the big surprise, every grown, so I interviewed grown children from 25 to 55 for this book and parents from 55 to 85. Every grown child I interviewed started the conversation. I love my parents. I'm so grateful to them. I'm grateful for the sacrifices, some said. I'm grateful for life, some said. And then what I'd say, well, how are you, you know, how's it going now? They would often say, we're not speaking, (laughs) Uh, leaving me messages. The love that they have for us, it's like, it's like the oil fields under Texas or something, where there's immense amounts of it, you don't see it. So we all need to remember they love us. They really love us, even when they're not returning our phone calls, even when they are testy, even when they slam the door, even when they say, as in my case, mother, please, (laughs) and so on. Um, And they can read us. They know when our shoulders, I I lift my shoulders. I had a boss who, when we were arguing, he was in California and I was in New York. We'd be arguing and he'd say to me, Jane, are your shoulders up to your ears? Because I raise my shoulders. We all, they know us. They can tell from our tone of voice how we feel, just the way we can. Yeah, I think they read us very well. We try not to be judgmental, but they see it in our faces. They see it anyway. So you don't have to say, don't marry her. If your face says, who is this woman you brought in the house? I mean, really? And advice is just not appreciated. One of the women talking to New Yorkers. I used to live in New York and you're so direct. I just love it. (laughs) Thank you. You're bringing in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's ask you a question. At the beginning of your book, it gave me pause. And I I want you to explain this to me. You talk about the empty nest and then Mm -hmm. you identify the second passage. And you said it's the second passage that we lack the language. We have no rules. And most importantly, we don't have the perspective that would help us enjoy this time. What do you mean by that? What is the second passage and what are the rules we don't have? Well, the rules we have are the rules in my book. (laughs) The the second. So you think of the empty nest when the kids go to college. They're still your children. They still depend on you. They still when they're you know, they come home. There comes a point when they're in their 20s, when they become independent, they move out, they're building their own lives. And we go, If you, I picture it as a, as a fried egg, not over easy. We used to be in the yolk with them. They are now in the yolk of the egg and we're on the brown fringe of the white. We're not central to their lives. That's the second passage. I really and, agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we don't have the language. We don't have the rules. We don't have the language. We have to make it up. And often we feel much worse than we should because we think they don't love us anymore. We think they don't care about us. That's not true. It's just not true. And I wrote this, I published this book 15 years ago. I've written my most recent book is about grandparents. 
Right. And the three generation family. I've done webinars and speak. You know, I've been all I've done. I've not only interviewed for the book, but I've talked to thousands of people since. And this is true. We feel bad when they don't call us back. We wish we want to hear more. We want to know more. And they need to build their independent lives. I wonder sometimes, do you feel bad because your life is empty, you know, and you and they fill it or they're not. You know, I really identify with this idea. You know, when people tell me, oh, my child's leaving for college, I'm so sad. I say, oh, that's nothing. They'll be home for every vacation. They, you know, they're going to be around the time that really becomes hard is when they are truly independent. That's right. And they really support themselves and they don't need to say to you, can I have five hundred dollars to go to whatever or twenty dollars to go to whatever they're going to whatever and you don't even know they're going to whatever that's right and And you're lucky if they send you a postcard from whatever right right right. and at some point i feel like it's our job to accept that and to, to know that they have their own lives and just hope they check in with us every so often or you know i try not to feel bad i feel better that they have their own lives i would be more worried if my Absolutely. child was not, did not have their own life was not working hard was not building a career and called me all the time because they didn't know what to do with themselves i i might be a little more concerned that way so when your children grow up and and establish their own lives we as parents have a new developmental leap to make and that is to make lives for ourselves and to understand that we may not be in the central to their lives, but we're central to our lives. And we have much to give the world and much to receive. And as women, you know, we, we go on forever. I'm 82 years old. Oh my gosh, I would never guess that. Those of you that are listening are not seeing Jane, but I'm seeing Jane. And 82 is not a number I would come up with, not even close. Not even. Thank you very much. And I am trying to make revolutions wherever I go. I'm editing books. I'm doing all kinds of things. And I've never stopped. Retirement is for other people. Now, we may want to go play golf and we may want to do all the things you do, but we don't have to. And the idea that our lives are are less because our kids are grown, that is a sexist idea. That is an idea that does not appreciate the vigor and the contribution that we women make. I think that's your next book, Jane. I but yeah, thank you. That's a great idea. <laughs> the but you know, the vigor, the excitement of our lives needs to be understood, appreciated, and and nurtured. Uh, when I was in therapy at one point, and I was having a, I was complaining as one does in therapy, pay somebody to listen. And I said to my therapist, I was I was tired, I was depleted. And I said, but I but the family comes first. I can't. And she said, you can't be the good mother and the good wife if if you don't take care of yourself. Now, this is a this was a long time ago. A lot of these ideas are now more in the conversation. Right. So so, and it's also there's another piece that I think is very important research that has that was just coming out when I was writing Walking on Eggshells. A psychologist whose name I cannot remember, I'm 82, I don't have to, (laughs) wrote a book uh, about extended adolescence. And in this book, he showed that what we used to think was adulthood, like voting age, Mm -hmm. just doesn't happen anymore. People in their 20s are still struggling. I think extended adolescence is getting longer. You're right. But once you understand that it's extended adolescence, 
then you don't hit yourself on the head for not having been a good parent because your child hasn't found a mate at 25. The world has changed. We lived in a world, I lived in a world where there were there were paths. When I, I, went, I went to a fancy women's college, very boring, don't recommend it. And, you know, either you went to graduate school or you got married. And the man had a job, got a, got a profession or got a job. They stayed in the same company for decades. Mm-hmm. It's not true. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is different. So our expectations, one of the things that we do, one of the ways we torture ourselves is by saying how, what by thinking what failures we are as parents. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the big failure spots is she doesn't have a boyfriend, he doesn't have a a boyfriend, she doesn't have a career, whatever. And the answer is in their 30s sometime they'll figure it out or they won't. The world is just not regular anymore. Mm-hmm. Put the pandemic on top of that. You know, and it's a mess. I, I actually I had a, 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 I was talking with a friend yesterday and I thought this would be a good story for you. She's got a 30 year old son and he's finally got himself a good job. He's making decent money. He's got all the good things. And she and her husband moved, left where they lived. He, her, they're retired to move to a beautiful state, which is not far from their son. Well, she said, you know, he came home. And he expected me to make all the decisions and do all the things. What Wait, happened? The decisions and do all the things. What do you mean by that? What kinds make of all the decisions? What should I do today? Can help me with all. He was a child again. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. And she said, and I said, this is what happens when they come home. Mm-hmm. They regress. And, and we, again, we blame ourselves. There's so much of this dynamic, Denise, is common, may not be universal, is common. And if we as parents can see it as a reality for many people, then we can't kick ourselves around the block over that. We can kick ourselves around the block over other things. We women have a way of judging ourselves. Uh, Right. You're so heartbreaking. You're so right. Well, you know what? I set this up as an episode to talk about the holidays and the kids coming home. Yes. So I want to get to that a little bit, but I love listening to everything else you're saying. So it's really hard, but holidays conjure up stress as it is. And many kids now don't live in the same town as their parents do. Everyone's gathering. And I still remember I lived in New York. My parents were in Ohio and um, I had a big extended Greek family. I was so excited to go home, but I was also very anxious Uh, Did I look okay? Had I gained weight that year? You know, what were they going to judge me at that point? So how can we as parents, we have our kids coming home. What are the kinds of things we can do to not have our kids feel that way when they come home or to lessen that anxiety when they walk in the house? What are the kinds of things we can do to bring joy to those days? Give them the keys to your extra car. (laughs) I know that sounds silly, but it's give them the opportunity to get out of the house because the house is the pressure cooker. No, you haven't seen them for so long. You want this quality time. You'll see them. And, and they'll be nicer to see if they breathe a little bit, if they're not anxious. Because when they're anxious, two things, one of many things can happen. But the things that come to mind are they get snippy and they get anxious and they hide in the house. So... Open the doors, open the windows, be happy when they are there. You'll have, you'll, if you have five good minutes of conversation, you know this, you know that conversation 
which is, and it's usually not across the table, it's usually side by side, cooking, walking, driving, hope for those moments, hope that they'll like their siblings, that they get along with their siblings and not go back to throwing walnuts across the dining room table. And if they do throw walnuts, laugh, because what they're doing is they're reenacting their childhoods. I think I, I have this theory. It's a, you know, it's a Jane, I say theory. Uh, we know that the sense of smell is the sense that brings back most memories. Okay. Um, and you smell the turkey, you smell the mashed potatoes. God forbid it has the marshmallows on it. And you are brought back to your childhood. Mm-hmm. And so regression, even just the smells of the Thanksgiving dinner, make you regress all the years that you smelled that food. You ask people, what is the smell that brings back your childhood? It'll uh, For you, what's, your, what's the smell that brings back your childhood? Myself? Yeah. Well, my father owned a chocolate factory, so I would say chocolate. <laughs> well, exactly. But, you know, what do you think about something that goes through my mind is giving them more control when they're home. So you have the big holiday meal. It seems like whatever age you are as a mother, and I'd love to know you at 82, if this still happens to you, the mom's still expected to make the meal. You know, did you get the turkey? Did you do this? Did you get that? Can you give them more control of the meal and say, okay, pick what you'd like to make this year. And that way they feel more like grownups in the house. It could be if they're those kind of children, but if they're, I have sons. Okay. Actually, one of them cooks, the mogul, my son, the mogul cooks dinner every night. So he's a big cook. So it was Russia. So holiday dinner, it was Russia Shana dinner. Right. And, and everybody was there. And I, there were 10 of us. I cooked for 10. I was exhausted, but I got it done. Josh came in the house and started telling me what to do. Mom, it's time to put the potato pancakes into heat. And I got crazy. And I said, I, I, I didn't scream. I said, Josh, I got to do this myself because his help was interfering with my pa- my plan. Mm-hmm. That was my story. I apologized. And he said, that's okay, mom. The night before he'd had his wife's whole family and he got anxious when he was cooking too. He understood it. Oh, the a big thing. This is drop a very important footnote. When you have blown up or overstepped, apologize. There is nothing better than an apology to heal it. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I think giving jobs, if you have a family where they want jobs, mm-hmm. give them jobs. If you have a family where they're going to feel judged, if they don't make the turkey the way you make it, don't give them jobs. This really has to do, you know, what you said about going home and am I going to look good enough to die, gain weight? Those, you're totally in the truth of what they're feeling. So putting pressure on them to accomplish something may or may not be useful. If you say to them, I, in my family, and this is, and in many people I've talked to, giving them the opportunity to to get out of the house for an hour or two, if they're there for a long weekend, is the best, it's the simplest thing. Um, Go for it, give them the keys, go for a ride, because they can then decompress. Right, right. And that's all, you just want them to feel better. We're never going to be what the television movie shows us, right? Right. <laughs> um, it's interesting what you say about, you know, when I said I would come home, is that, have I gained weight? Da, 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 da. But when I look back on this now, I realize that when you haven't seen your adult children for a while and they come home, you are looking at them. They you are looking at me. But I think now when I see my kids, I'm oh, my gosh, your hair's gotten so dark or, oh, you know, and, and you would say that to a friend. 
but a friend wouldn't take it as a judgment. They'd say, I know I just stopped highlighting it or, you know, whatever. But when you say it to your child, it all suddenly feels like you're judging them. They feel like you're judging them. Absolutely. I think there's a historical reason for this. And that is that we were in charge of them when they were little. Right. And if that we criticize them, they might get in trouble. Interesting. Anything we say, it's it's through a megaphone, a megaphone of judgment. I love that. Say that one more time. Anything we say comes to them through a megaphone of judgment. If you know that, I mean, it's just the reality. It's not neurotic. It, it's just the reality. Once you know that, then you then you say, you know, I think I'll. I'll find a nicer way to say your hair is dark. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, here's a true story from my life. I had a very judgmental mother. She was a great heroine. She went from poverty to fame and success. All I'm going to ask you something before you start this story. Do you really think she was judgmental or do you think you were hearing her megaphone? I'll tell you the story. Okay. <laughs> they were a poor Lower East Side family five sisters orphaned in the flu epidemic of 1918. My mother was the oldest. She raised the girls in poverty where they in their poverty fat from the meat mm-hmm. was the prized piece of the meat because you got more calories per square, anything from fat and they were hungry a lot. So then weight and size was very important to her as it was to many parents of that generation. She was in the hospital dying. How old was she? 77. She lied about her age. Everybody thought she was 73, but she was really 77. I visited her. Her last words to me were, what size are you? And was it because you were too slight? Because you look very thin to me. Did she? Well, I was wearing, a. I was, I was always, in her eyes, I was heavy. Oh, okay. Okay. I wasn't a, a model size. She never bought anything wholesale. We would, we'd go to the dressmakers and try to buy samples. And I sometimes didn't fit. I was too, I was too fat for the samples. So you feel that those were her last words. What what do you think now? This was many years ago, I'm sure. And where does that take you now? Do you look back and say she didn't understand what she was saying or does it still? She understood full what she was saying. This was one of her values. She died in 80. Mm -hmm. So that's a while ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I've spent a lot of time to, I've spent a lot of time and effort trying to figure out what she suffered And how she dealt with her own suffering. And I'm here to tell you, there's no way I can compare my life with a a woman who went to school all day, worked all evening, came home, bought food on her way home, cooked it for the four sisters and got up early in the, you know, the life of insecurity and poverty that so many of our forebears Mm -hmm. lived through is something that it it, it had an effect on them. So my job is to understand her now. Right. Um, and my job is never to mention, say anything like that to any of my children or grandchildren. Let me ask you a question now about the holidays and the religious element. Yes. You know, many times kids decide, you know, they may have been brought up as, you know, going to synagogue for holidays. They may have been brought up going to church at Easter, yes. whatever it might be. And now they've taken another direction. Either they are not interested in religion. They are more interested than you are in religion. How do you handle that when it's been a tradition your whole life for all of you to go to your religious place of worship together? Do you make them go? Do you uh, just say, okay, stay home if you don't want to and go by yourself? What do you suggest parents do in those kinds of situations? It's such a hard question. That's why I'm asking it. (laughs) (laughs) I think our attitude needs to be they will come to these values when they're ready. 
if they do. And I hope they come to our family values before I die. Who knows? If they don't want to go to church, you can't make it. I think if our goal is to is to keep our egos as far off the table as possible. Well, at the end of the table, you know, mm-hmm. our egos determine a lot of this. And if we can just say, it's not about me. I love my children. It, it's got, They're not going to enjoy going with us, me. And it's going to make them less likely to follow our religion if I force them into it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to do it in the hopes that my being not non-forcing um, helps and and they see how the pleasure it gives me and the important it, importance it is in my life. Maybe they'll be interested. I have two sons. I was going to say, has it changed since your sons have had children? One of my sons uh, is it has married a Jewish girl, and they've been that both kids have been born by mitzvah. Now, of course, after that, nobody's interested in it anymore because they've done the thing, which I think is interesting. And my other son is married to a woman who's not Jewish and they're, and, the, and they're not interested in this. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping at some point, the son who's married uh, out to a wonderful woman who's not Jewish, we were in the car and David said to his son, Toby, do you want a bar mitzvah? And Toby said, no, this was after one of his cousins had, and, and he said, talk to grandma. And I was in the front seat. He was in the back seat. I said, Toby, if you want a party, we'll give you a party. I said, but if you're doing the bar mitzvah for the presence, I'm not going to be in favor of it. Um, but that's me. I, I'm more interested in the universal values that all religions promote than in the rituals that we love. That's all I can say. I think when you, I think, I think the quickest way to make a girl love the boy she shouldn't have anything to do with is to say, don't love him. <laughs> and the quickest way to turn your children away from your family's religion is to make them do the rituals. And the real question as to religion for me, and this is just me speaking only for myself, if they're good people and they are generous and they are kind and they care about others and they have the values, they act, live our the values, I think that's fabulous. When you think of the cruelty and the selfishness that is all around us in this world, if they're good people, we've done a good job. You're right. We did an episode just on spirituality. um, And a lot of that came out. So one other thing in your book, you talked about key triggers, that there were key triggers that can trigger the kids acting out the parents acting out. Can you remember what those are and how parents might navigate through them? Criticism is a big trigger. As I've said, advice is a big trigger. Here's an example of that family I know. She was engaged to somebody who was wrong for her. And her father kept screaming, don't marry him. He's wrong for you. They would come and stay. He criticized the guy. Well, she finally did break up with him. But who was she mad at? Her father. He should have kept out of it. He should He should have had faith in my judgment. They had a wedding date plan, but he should have kept his mouth shut. The trigger of you should... I won't. It never helps. It never moves anybody forward. As I've I've come to realize in advice, in the matter of advice, if you give them good advice, then they'll really be mad at you when it turns out you're right. Because they'll think you're thinking, I told you so. So just keep your mouth shut. Uh, One of the people I interviewed called it shredded tongue syndrome. 
Bite your tongue. Jane, don't you know the name of our podcast is Bite Your Tongue? Well, there you are. There you are. Right? There you are. And it's just, you know, it's I for a long time I thought it was manipulative. And it is manipulative, but if it gets you peace and closeness and allows the love to flow instead of the anxiety and anger, do it. I think the hardest part, I think everything you're saying is absolutely right. I think the hardest part is we've experienced a lot more life than they have. And watch, you know, little tiny things, you know, like uh, I can't even think of an example. And you just want to say, are you maxing out your 401k? Are you, um, and I know these are first world problems, but you know, how are you managing this? Or are you budgeting? Do you know what you're saving? You know, those are the things that I worry about a lot. You know, are they budgeting? And then I look back to my years in my 20s and early 30s living in New York City. I spent, I mean, I went out to dinner. I, I Do you think I was thinking about budgeting or anything? But I look back and I wish I would have done more of that. Sure. You know, so I want to tell them that. But you're right. They're going to not listen to me like I didn't listen to my parents telling me things like that. And also there's another reason why we, uh, another reason for this, and that is they need to make their own mistakes just the way we do. But when they're 50 or 60, they're going to say, why didn't my mom tell me I should have maxed out my 401k at that first year of work or whatever? Well, if you're still alive, you'll say, because I knew you wouldn't believe me. Or you wouldn't <laughs> listen to me. That's exactly what to me. <laughs> yeah. and, I, you know, and furthermore, the question of mistakes is, is an interesting one. So one of my sons is the founder and, and CEO of a oral history product project called StoryCorps. Oh, I know StoryCorps. He founded StoryCorps? Yeah, he's the founder and CEO. Oh, I love StoryCorps. Okay, go ahead. At some point, he won the $10 million prize. Right. To do an app where you could have an inter- have a StoryCorps conversation, not in the booth, but on the phone. Mm-hmm. And they wanted him to interview his mother for Mother's Day. When you win a TED prize, they want you to do a lot of what they want, and you do it in gratitude. You should. Yeah. So, and one of his questions in this StoryCorps interview was, do you have any regrets? Now, I've had a long and hard life. I'm not going to go into it. Complicated life. And I said, you know, I don't know what would have happened if I had made other choices. So not knowing what would have happened if I had done this instead of that, I can't, I can't feel bad about having done this. One of the self-judgment areas that we as parents torture ourselves over is the mistakes we've made with the kids. Mm-hmm. So she's not saving money. It's my fault. It's not your fault. She's not saving money. We don't have control over them after they're adults. All we can do is look at their is look at the person they are and pray that what we put into them, the love and the and the acceptance and the empathy and all of that has made them decent enough people. The mistakes what their mistakes are not our mistakes any more than our mistakes were the responsibility of our parents. You need to fall down. You pick yourself. So, and yet when you go to the therapist, they're always trying to identify what your mother or what your father did to give you the issue that you have today. I know that and I, I spent 25 years publishing the Freudians right in, at Yale and at basic books. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize, world. You know, it's fine. We have to understand the dynamics of our childhood. But the parent blaming is, I think, uh, an interesting but no cigar. And I, you know, I'm sorry so much of therapy is about that. 
and understand they did the best they could. Everyone did the best they could. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. Let me switch this one second because we don't have a whole lot of time left. How about when you go visit your kids? Now, it sounds like your kids both live in New York. Is that right? I'm so lucky. So you don't have to go stay at their house. But how about some of the people you interviewed and the stories when the parents were going to visit the kids? What I found now in my, you know, my my in-laws and my parents lived out of town. So when they came to visit, they all stayed at my house. Having guests in your house can be stressful as much as you love them. My friends are choosing to get an Airbnb next door, but not everyone can afford that. So how do parents navigate going to visit the kids and the grandkids and during the holidays and going into their homes? If they have their own room, shut the door. It's hard. And again, visiting your grown children, staying with them, um, is a is a very complicated it's a complicated issue because you're not because at that point you're really not in control my my younger son has a house in the country and in the first spring of of covid he picked me up i live i live in a in an apartment on madison avenue overlooking mount sinai hospital it was not the happiest place to be in the first six months of covid oh i bet yeah, yeah. And he and they were they they moved to the country from 86th Street and he would come down, pick me up for a weekend so that I could just be with people. I was all alone and I never I didn't see people's mouths because everybody was in masks. So is your husband your husband's gone? Is that right? My late, yeah, my husband died 10 years ago. So oh, I live. Alone. Sorry. OK, so continue. I didn't realize that. And I fe- and they they had a room for me. I I was so glad to be there. I was so glad to sit outside. I love them so much, but it's stressful. Mm-hmm. And and because I follow my own rules, shut the door. I shut the door when it when I've had enough. Uh, and uh, and also, you know, the grandchildren they were on their phones and on their screens. I couldn't get the attention I wanted. And as the grandchildren grow older, they're not either. Hi, Grandma. I'll give you a kiss, and then they're on into their lives. And that's another time when we have to say, "Not my life." It's their life. And it, and, and as, you it's, the grand, as you watch the grandkids on their screens and on their phones, do you have to bite your tongue and not say, isn't this enough phones and screens? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. I find that the best way to be with the grandchildren is to be with the grandchildren when the parents aren't around. Yeah, a lot of people say that. A lot of and so and that's and that's the secret sauce of that. I mean, visits like that are wonderful. They're just not going to be a lot of fun. I think the idea that family gathering should be not only important but pleasurable maybe a little a little optimistic because the all the old tensions come out it's just we are humans we have memories mm-hmm. and we and you know you see something uh, one of the people i interviewed had a daughter who was cooking with that that thing where you put all the food in a plastic bag and put it in water Oh, yeah. It's like Sue something. I can't remember the name. Yeah, Sue B. That's it. Yeah. And her daughter-in-law was making hamburgers sous vide when they really ought to be on the grill outside. And it took all she could do to eat a hamburger and say, oh, this is good. It wasn't good. But she's not going to say it's not good because it's not it, it doesn't do any good. It's already cooked. Everything you're saying is right. I guess they feel sometimes, though, 
that it lessens the real relationship. Like if that, if that woman were with a friend and the friend was making these hamburgers sous vide, the, the friend would say, geez, that's an odd way to make it. And they talk about it and she'd take a bite of it and she'd say, it's fine, but I prefer it on the grill. But you can't do that to your adult child. It doesn't make sense to me. It's only because you're, uh, you're the megaphone. Your criticisms are a megaphone. And, and the rest of your example is a very important point that I try to make whenever I talk about this. Girlfriends, the, so the answer to great relationships with your grown children is girlfriends. Call them up and complain. <laughs> I'm telling you. And, and you know, your kids know that you're not really loving the sous vide. Your kids know everything. They know how you feel, but they also know how much you love them. Yeah. And how much they love you. Um, And here's an example from my own experience this year. And it's a perfect example of so many things. My older son lives in Brooklyn and I got COVID. Oh, you did. I was I was sick and I was alone. And it was a very long it was a long spring a year ago this year, this spring. He calls me every night. Now, he I'm so grateful that he calls me now. Sometimes he's too busy with his work and the children to call me before I've gone to bed. And I don't have the heart to say, could you call me at 830? I you certainly don't want it. to direct what time he's going to call you. You're just so happy he's calling. I'm so. And so now what he does is if it's late, he texts me. Are you up? Mm-hmm. I take my hearing aids out. I go to sleep. I don't hear the phone being texted. Mm-hmm. So I know that he's interested and he hasn't wake, awakened me. And I am so grateful that I have a child who cares that much. So he's still, even when you don't have COVID, he calls you every night or texts you? Yeah. yeah. Well, he calls to check in because I'm old. And you're alone. And I'm alone. My other son doesn't call every night, but he checks in regularly. Right. And to, I have uh, some teenage grandchildren who check in on their own. I'm not complaining at all, but I'm saying that... I am very, and of course, because I preach this, so I really live by my preaching and I'm probably a little more involved. I I think I may be more, more royalist than the king, whatever that is. I think I'm extreme, but it works. The closeness and it's not false. I want, I want to say something about when you don't say this sous vide is really boring. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you're not, you're false. It just means you're not complaining. You say, oh, this is delicious. And you're thinking to yourself, I can barely get this down. You don't say it's delicious. You just eat it. <laughs> well, they should say, how do you like it? Do you like it? Do you like it? If they say, how do you like it? Then I might say, um, uh, I don't know what I'd say. They don't ask. Fortunately, if they, I mean, you have to be honest. If somebody said to me, how do you like cauliflower? Now, here's an example. I have a son who, who's the cauliflower king. And he makes cauliflower every night that, uh, you know, if he said, isn't this cauliflower, I would say, this is really good tonight, if it's good. And right. if it's not good, I would say, you know, I've had better from you. Right. This is a position that a lot of people aren't in where you see them more regularly and talk to yeah. them. Directly. When your kids live out of state and you're visiting them or they're visiting you and they're making a meal, I think I might say it's delicious, to be honest with you, whatever they put in front of me. Absolutely. And it, and, and it's delicious because they've cooked it for yeah, you exactly. and you're at the table. Be lying because I'd be so happy that it was cooked and prepared and whatever. That's I would right. say this is wonderful. This is or true. you could say, I love this. Right, right. And you do love it. And that that's absolutely right. Exactly. 
Okay, so before we close, I always ask my guests to give us two or three key takeaways. I'd love them to relate a little bit to the holidays, but you've said so many other things that have been important. So of all the things we've said, can you give our listeners two or three takeaways that you hope they take from this conversation in building healthy relationships with their adult children? One, they love you, even though they're not answering your texts. Okay. They're busy, they're building a life. Number two, when they are grown, you are not responsible for their mistakes or for the, for their what they do. It's over to them. So don't blame yourself for how what they are doing. And number three, if you have complaints about them, share them with other adults, not with them. I like that very, very much, Jane. That's really terrific. I appreciate this. And I'm sort of glad we did Zoom because I got to see you. Yeah. Anyway, I just am so pleased to have met you. But I miss New York. I miss the vitality of New York. I miss talking to people just like you. <laughs> well, maybe we could meet in person when you visit. Would that be fun? That. Would that be fun? That well, thank be you so much. And My pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much. Okay. Lovely to meet you. Bye. Bye. Jane, thank you so much. Talking to Jane was the most fun I've had in a long time. I used to live in New York City and I miss so much this straightforward kind of conversation. She gave us some great lines and great advice. We'll remember that our voice is sometimes the megaphone and we won't forget to shut the door. This was so helpful. We're so privileged that you joined us. And listeners, please remember to share this episode with a friend and help us reach our goal of 1,000 downloads per episode. And again, follow us on social media, and please subscribe to Bite Your Tongue wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, when you subscribe, give us five stars. Thanks again to the talented Connie Fisher, who's doing all of our engineering work. And until next time, remember, sometimes you just have to bite your tongue.